It's time for the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent ETA, Agent Ether, and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out our Facebook group and page. All right, let's get to the next one, which was, uh, this is, now coming up next, we have the double event, starting with Elizabeth Stride, aged 45. This one happened on September 30th. And once again, we have some similarities that we've already talked about, like the lady's been drinking a lot. Uh, and we we have, so we have witness statements who place where this victim was at certain times. So at 11 o'clock, she was seen with a well-dressed short man with a dark mustache. They were at a public house and went to leave it, but it was raining really good outside. Uh, They stood there in the doorway, kind of getting their groove on for a little while. And some people uh, were kind of a little shocked, you know, at this, because it's pretty unusual, I guess, for people to just sit there in public, you know, kind of doing this heavy petting kind of thing. And apparently some people in the establishment called out to her, that's leather apron fattened round you before the, before the couple left. So, but I don't think we mentioned yet. We'll get to it maybe later, but leather apron was one of the names that Jack the Ripper was given before he was known as Jack the Ripper. But they told her that's Jack the Ripper, but that, that probably was not him, but they were telling her that on the night that she got murdered. So she's seen a little bit later at 11.45 with a different man. At 12.35, she's seen with yet another man. And this one's described as 28 years old with a dark coat. And he had a hard deer, uh, deer stalker hat. He carried a parcel approximately 6 inches high and 18 inches in length. And the package was wrapped in newspaper. And that's sort of a very suspicious detail because that's exactly the sort of parcel he might need to you know, if it was Jack the Ripper. And at 1245, we have a statement here. Um, says, Israel Schwartz of 22 Helen Street, Back Church Lane, stated that at this hour, turning into Burner Street from Commercial Road and having gotten as far as the gateway where the murder was committed, he saw a man stop and speak to a woman who was standing in the gateway. He tried to pull the woman into the street, but he turned her round and threw her down on the footway and the woman screamed three times but not very loudly on crossing to the opposite side of the street he saw a second man lighting his pipe the man who threw the woman down called out apparently to the man on the opposite side of the road Lipsky and then Schwartz walked away but finding that he was followed by the second man he ran as far as the railway arch but the man did not follow so far Schwartz cannot say whether the two men were together or known to each other. Upon being taken to the mortuary, Schwartz identified the body as that of the woman he had seen. Now, this is a really interesting, this is like what I was talking about, is that one of these two guys could have been Jack the Ripper, but then again, it might be completely unrelated. Who knows? Or they could have been working together because some people theorize that Jack the Ripper was more than one person. That's actually, yeah, we'll talk about that later, but I think that's a strong possibility. At one o'clock, her body is found by Louis Diemschutz. He was driving his cart and pony, 
and immediately at the entrance to the yard his pony shied and refused to proceed. He suspected that something was in the way, but he could not see since the yard was utterly pitch black. He probed forward with his whip and came into contact with a body whom he initially believed to be either drunk or asleep. He entered the International Working Men's Educational Club, which was right next to the yard, to get some help in rousing the woman, and upon returning to the yard with Isaac Kozbrodsky and Morris Eagle, the three discovered that she was dead, her throat cut. It's believed that Diemschutz's arrival frightened the Ripper, causing him to flee before he was able to perform the mutilations that he did on the other victims. Diemschutz himself stated that he believed the Ripper was still in the yard when he had entered, due to the warm temperature of the body and the behavior of his pony, because the pony probably would not have been able to see the body or sense it. It probably would have just walked right over the body, so perhaps the pony was instead reacting to the presence of somebody else in the yard that startled him. But yeah, so that that was the first of the double event, and that's people generally agree that probably Jack the Ripper was interrupted while committing that particular murder. So let's talk about the next one, which is Catherine Eddowes. She was five feet tall. She had a tattoo in blue ink on her left forearm that said TC, and she was about 46 years old. And I'm not sure if these descriptions mean anything or not, but it's interesting to note that most of these women were in their, well, pretty much all of them, except for the last one, they were in their mid to late 40s. And I kind of think that's an important detail because there had to have been younger and probably even older prostitutes out and about. But if you get some that are a little older, maybe it's just simply they're easier to subdue. On the other hand, maybe a younger one would be more athletically capable and you know fit and able to defend ourselves. Um, maybe it's something to do with you know, something in the killer's past where that's the age that he's focusing on for whatever reason, you know, maybe a past trauma, maybe his mother, who knows? It It's interesting to speculate on though. Okay, so the, the next one, um, we'll talk about her, Catherine Eddowes. So at 8 p.m., she is found drunk and lying on the street and she's brought to the police station. She sleeps it off there and they let her go at about one in the morning. She leaves the station and goes in the opposite direction of where she would go if she was going home to sleep, or where she was staying anyways. Now, she's eventually found in the Mitre Square, and that would have taken her about 10 minutes to get there from the police station. Uh, at 1.35, she's seen talking with a man with her hand on his chest. He is about 30 years old, 5 foot 7 inches, has a fair complexion, a mustache, and a medium build. His overall appearance is that of a sailor, which is kind of interesting that uh, Agent ETA mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, about the fisherman kind of a thing, that this dude was, uh, maybe that was him. I mean, that's just kind of an interesting detail. And then very shortly thereafter, at 145, her body is found in Mitre Square. So because of the very short timeline, that's like 10 minutes, that if that wasn't the guy then it would have had to happen either immediately after that or that timeline is not correct. But here's the inquest report for this particular victim, which, um, again, warning, this gets kind of gruesome, but the body was on its back, the head turned to the left shoulder, the arms by the side of the body as if they had fallen there, both palms upwards, the fingers slightly bent, the left leg extended in a line with the body, the abdomen was exposed, 
The right leg bent at the thigh and knee, the throat cut across. The intestines were drawn out to a large extent and placed over the right shoulder. They were smeared over with some feculent matter. A piece of about two feet was quite detached from the body and placed between the body and the left arm, apparently by design. The lobe and article of the right ear were cut obliquely through. There was a quantity of clotted blood on the pavement on the left side of the neck round the shoulder and upper part of the arm, and fluid blood-colored serum which had flown under the neck to the right shoulder, the pavement sloping in that direction. The body was quite warm. No death stiffening had taken place. She must have been dead most likely within the half hour. We looked for superficial bruises and saw none. No blood on the skin of the abdomen or secretion of any kind on the thighs. No spurting of blood on the bricks or pavement around. No marks of blood below the middle of the body. Several buttons were found in the clotted blood after the body was removed. There was no blood on the front of the clothes. There were no traces of re recent connection. C-O-N-N-E-X-I-O-N. That's connexion. That's how they used to say getting your groove on back there or bumping uglies or whatever. That's what they said back in uh, Victorian times. So anyways, they didn't see any signs of that sort of thing. When the body arrived at Golden Lane, some of the blood was dispersed through the removal of the body to the mortuary. The clothes were taken off carefully from the body. A piece of the deceased's ear dropped from the clothing. And that... She was really, really quite badly mutilated. I won't go over every minute detail, which you can find in the reports, but the, her eyelids were cut through. There were cuts on her face that didn't appear random. For example, is a quote from the inquest, there was on each side of the each side of cheek a cut which peeled up the skin, forming a triangular flap about an inch and a half. On the left cheek, there were two abrasions of the epithelium under the left ear. So that's what I mean. It's it's not like somebody was just randomly slicing and dicing her face. It was very deliberate and very thorough and methodical the way she was mutilated. The throat was cut. The abdomen was cut open from the breastbone all the way to the pubic bone. The liver had been cut in several places. Her abdominal skin was cut in such a way that the navel was left on a tongue of skin. Her genitals were mutilated. Her uterus was cut up and her left kidney was missing. And part of her, this, okay, so one of the details about this one that's kind of interesting is they found part of her bloody apron at the entrance to a tenement, and there was a chalk inscription on the wall above it that said, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. And some people think that this is significant. Other people think that it was just random because this kind of, this kind of graffiti was very common in the area, so it's entirely plausible that the bloody apron was just sort of ditched there. Like if, let's say the killer was wearing the apron and as he was running off from the scene of the crime, he just kind of tossed it somewhere and it landed, just so happened to land underneath this graffiti. Or on the other hand, maybe the killer wrote it. We ne will never know for sure. But even if the killer wrote it, it probably would have been a misdirection. It, But who knows? I mean, we could debate about the graffiti all day, but it is sort of an interesting little piece. At any rate, the police commissioner Warren, he ordered the graffiti to be removed because he was afraid that there would be an anti-Semitic riot if it was found or if it was made public. That bloody piece of apron is a really interesting piece of, you know, forensic evidence that's debated about to this day, but it's not really, 
it's not really usable because it's been handed back and forth throughout the years so much so that it would be really difficult to establish whose DNA is coming from what. So it's kind of useless as a piece of hard evidence. But um, beyond that, it's still it's a piece of evidence that's out there to this day. Okay, the last victim, victim number five of the canonical five, was named Mary Jane Kelly. This one, she's a little different in some ways. Remember, this is the only one where she was actually murdered indoors versus all the other ones who were just murdered out in the middle of the street, which is kind of strange that nobody got caught doing that. But anyways, Mary Jane Kelly was 25 years old at the time of her murder, and uh, her height was 5 foot 7 inches. She had blonde hair and blue eyes with a fair complexion, and she was generally regarded as being a haughty. That's right, she was very good-looking, apparently. Not saying the other ladies weren't, but this one was allegedly better-looking than average. She was also known to cause trouble when she was drunk, although a lot of people, a lot of witnesses later on said that she didn't drink that often, but when she did, she kind of got out of hand. On the other hand, she did have the appearance of being, you know, somebody down on her luck who was a prostitute and drank an awful lot. Uh, we don't really know that much for sure. All we know is what the witnesses have told us. There's some a couple of interesting facts in her case. So she lived with a man named Joseph Barnett for a little while, starting in 1887. He had a decent job and helped to support her. In August or September of 1888, he lost his job and she turned to prostitution. It's at this point that he left her, although he was noted to have visited her pretty much every day since he left her. So they were still in contact and may have even been on good terms still. It's just, you know, if you're dating somebody and they're kind of, you know, dating a lot of other people, it might be hard to hold down a relationship, I'm guessing. A witness named Elizabeth Prater, who lived above Mary Jane Kelly, said that the couple had an argument the couple being her and Joseph Barnett, that they had an argument on October 30th between 5 and 6 p.m. And this that may, may be neither here nor there, but the point is, is that uh, they were still in contact and they may have had a contentious relationship. Hmm, possible motive? Who knows? Thomas Boyer, he, he was a soldier on a pension that also worked in a shop. He saw Mary Jane in the shop where he worked and on the evening of Wednesday, November 7th, he saw her speaking to a man that closely matched the description of a man who was seen speaking with another victim, Elizabeth Stride, so shortly before she had been murdered. So let's start on the evening of Thursday, November 8th, going on to the morning of Friday, November 9th. At 7 p.m. in the evening, Barnett visited her, which was not unusual. He, like I said, he visited her all the time, apparently. She was with another woman at the time who also lived there, and that was possibly a woman named Lizzie Albrook or Maria Harvey. We're not quite sure on that detail. At 8 o'clock, Barnett left and went to his boarding house where he played whist until 12.30 a.m. and then went to bed. I'm not sure what whist is, but it's one of those uh, English games. It's probably like what they call poker over in England, right? Ah, dear me, I was up playing whist until the wee hours of the morning or something like that. All right, at 11 o'clock... She was seen drinking with a young man with a dark mustache who was well-dressed, and she was described as being very drunk. At 11.45, Mary Ann Cox, 
another prostitute that lived near Kelly, uh, Mary Jane Kelly, was returning home and saw Mary Jane walking with a man in front of her. He was stout in his mid-30s and about 5 foot 5 inches tall. He was wearing a long overcoat and a billy cock hat. I have no idea what a billy cock hat is, but it sounds like a jolly good time. I like it. His clothes looked shabby. His face was blotchy and he had small side whiskers and a carroty mustache. Carroty, I wonder what that means. This probably means something specific over there across the pond. And my favorite detail of this particular anecdote was that he was carrying a pail of beer. That's right, a pail of beer. That's probably just like a glass or, you know, um, you know, a mug of beer or something. But in England, they call it a pail. Ah, blimey old chap had a pail of beer with him. Which, you know, I love that description. I, too, would like to drink beer out of a pail. I approve. All right, Mrs. Cox said goodnight as she passed them in front of Kelly's door. Mary Jane Kelly replied in a drunken voice, Goodnight, I'm going to sing. Which, that's kind of a strange thing to say. You say, you ever walk by one of your buddies? You know, hey, hey, see you later, dude. All right, hey, night. Uh, I'm going to go sing now. Okay. Mrs. Cox then heard Mary Jane singing a violet from Mother's Grave a little bit later. So at midnight, Mrs. Cox goes out again and hears Mary Jane still singing the same song. So she's been singing this same song for about 15 minutes now. Perhaps she had picked up a man who had a very specific fetish. Okay, I guess, hey, to each their own, right? At 1230, another witness in the area also reported hearing Mary Jane singing. And about 1 a.m., Mrs. Cox returned home again, and Mary Jane was still singing. And shortly after that, Mrs. Cox went out again. So now she's been singing for well over an hour. Again, hey, strange fetish, who am I to judge? All right, around this time, 1 a.m., another witness was standing in the street for about 30 minutes waiting for a man and didn't see anyone else come or go from the area. About 2 a.m., George Hutchinson, a witness, passed a man in the street. He then saw Mary Jane, who asked him for money. He told her he didn't have any, and he kept walking. Mary Jane then said that she had to go find some money and walked away. She meets the man Hutchinson had passed. The man put his hand on Kelly's shoulder and said something, at which they both laughed. Hutchinson heard Kelly say, All right, and the man said, You will be all right for what I have told you. The man then put his right hand on her shoulder and they walked off. Hutchinson got a good look at the man while he and Kelly were standing under a streetlight. He had a pale complexion, slight mustache, turned up at the corners, dark hair, dark eyes, and bushy eyebrows. Hutchinson described him as having a Jewish appearance. The man was wearing a soft felt hat pulled down over his eyes, a long dark coat trimmed in ashcratan, ash, astrakhan, whatever that is, and had a massive gold chain in his waistcoat that had a seal with a red stone hanging from it. He was five foot six inches and mid-thirties. He had a small package in his left hand. And man, uh, this is, it's kind of frustrating because this, this, could have this been the guy? Could this have been Jack the Ripper? I mean, on the other hand, you know, her and her previous man who she was living with, they, they might have been fighting and, you could always imagine that maybe this was some kind of lover's quarrel and he got mad and murdered, murdered her for some reason. And her previous boyfriend, Barnett, who she'd been living with for a while, remember? 
Uh, he would not have had the money to buy a massive gold chain. It's unlikely he would have had that in his possession. So it's unlikely he would have had that kind of, you know, he would have been so well-dressed with all those expensive clothes and the expensive gold chain. So that kind of, even though he doesn't have an alibi at this point, that sort of seems to rule him out, does at least to me. But the reason I mentioned him earlier on the summary is because, you, you know, never want to rule out anything entirely, I suppose. Anyways, Mary Jane continued to where she lived, and Hutchinson followed them. So the fact that he was following them, his spidey senses were tingling, I'm guessing. Otherwise, he would have just left. Because it's not like, like a guy getting together with a prostitute was a very common occurrence in these parts. There's nothing unusual about that. These prostitutes, if you look at their descriptions, they're picking up multiple customers a night. So he probably wouldn't have thought twice. But there's something about this encounter that really caught his attention and made him think twice. And especially because by this time, the murders had been in the newspapers and everything. So maybe he was just kind of paranoid. Maybe it was nothing. Who knows? While he was following them, they stopped and talked for a few minutes, and he heard Mary Jane say, All right, my dear, come along. You will be comfortable. They kissed and then continued walking. Hutchinson waited until the clock struck 3 a.m., then went his own way. Mrs. Cox returned home again at about 3 a.m. She didn't see any light from Kelly's room. Now, again, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. If they had gone into the room to, you know, do the hanky-panky or whatever, they very well could have turned out the lights because they wanted more privacy or maybe to set the mood. On the other hand, if you were a murderer trying to murder somebody, you would might want to do it in darkness so that nobody passing by outside the window could look in and see. Mrs. Cox didn't go to sleep. She stayed up uh, after that, but um, she didn't see anything, but she did hear men coming and going once in a while throughout the night. She remembered somebody leaving a house at about 545, but she wasn't sure what house he came from. Elizabeth Prater, was another witness, was woken by her cat at about 4 a.m., and she heard a faint cry of, oh, murder. But since such things were very common around there, she ignored it. That, that was actually in her witness statement when she was talking to the police. Like, oh, yeah, we hear people say, screaming murder all the time around these parts, so I just kind of ignored it and went back to sleep. Another witness named Sarah Lewis, also in the area, also heard the cry of murder. So whether that means anything, we don't know. Could that have been Mary Jane yelling, oh, murder, when she was being made perhaps strangled? Uh, as the Ripper, we know he liked to strangle his victims and then slash their throats. So at 545, perhaps she was being strangled to death and she was, she said, oh, murder, but she couldn't say it loudly because she was being strangled. Is this possible? I don't know. Anything's possible at this point, I think. A woman named Caroline Maxwell claimed to see Kelly's body at 8.30 a.m., and this is several hours after the estimated time of death, but this one is kind of a little, it's a little strange because she was able to describe what she had been wearing, what, you know, what Mary Jane was wearing that night and that kind of thing, yet on the other hand, she didn't report it to the police, so it, maybe back then people didn't have that many sets of clothing, so maybe she was able to just guess what she'd been wearing or something, uh, who knows. Now, Thomas Boyer went to collect rent money from Mary Jane at about 10.45 a.m. He received no response when he knocked, and the door was locked. He pushed aside the curtains, and he saw Mary Jane's mutilated body, which, that's kind of a strange detail. Did people have their curtains on the outside of their windows? Or maybe the window was open, and he was able to push them aside. 
Anyways, he went and told his boss, John McCarthy, and they went and got the police. Mary Jane's Kelly's clothes were folded neatly on a chair and her boots were in front of the fireplace. There were a lot of blood there was a lot of blood on the floor and under the bed. Mary Jane's throat had been slit while she was on the right side of the bed and she had bled out onto the floor. And this would match even though there there's some strange details like the, this woman is younger than the Ripper's previous victims and it's indoors instead of outdoors, but she was drunk that night. And it does match the M.O. of the other victims. So it is, it is similar enough to at least, for me anyways, to think that it was probably was Jack the Ripper. Here's a description from the inquest. And this is not for the faint of heart. Like we've said before on this episode, I'll say it again. This was probably the most gruesome murder. And it kind of makes you wonder if, you know, if the previous murder, he was in, well, two murders ago, right? Jack was interrupted. And then because he was interrupted, he went he mutilated the following victim the same evening, even worse than normal. But, you know, maybe he really enjoyed that or something. And, you know, he carried that out on this victim. He went uh, further than he had before. It was really bad. There are pictures. There's two pictures available online if you're curious, but uh, they are really bad. And even though they're black and white, they're just, they're hard to look at. And uh, I saw them on a website while I was reading about this case about this particular victim. There's a specific page on the victim and the pictures are on that page. They're really gruesome and I don't suggest you look at them. They're bad. Anyways, the description from the inquest. The body was lying naked in the middle of the bed, the shoulders flat, but the axis of the body inclined to the left side of the bed. The head was turned on the left cheek. The left arm was close to the body with the forearm flexed at right angle and lying across the abdomen. The right arm was slightly abducted from the body and rested on the mattress. The elbow was bent, the forearm supine with the fingers clenched. The legs were wide apart, the left thigh at the right angles to the trunk, and the right forming an obtuse angle with the pubes. The whole of the surface of the abdomen and thighs was removed and the abdominal cavity emptied of its viscera. The breasts were cut off, the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds and the face hacked beyond recognition of the features. The tissues of the neck were severed all round down to the bone. The viscera were found in various parts, viz. the uterus and kidneys with one breast under the head, the other breast by the right foot, the liver between the feet, the intestines by the right side, and the spleen by the left side of the body. The flaps removed from the abdomen and thighs were on a table. The bed clothing at the right corner was saturated with blood, and on the floor beneath was a pool of blood covering about two feet square. The wall by the right side of the bed, and in a line with the neck, was marked by blood which had struck it in a number of separate splashes. The face was gashed in all directions, the nose, cheeks, eyebrows, and ears being partly removed. The lips were blanched and cut by several incisions running obliquely down to the chin. There were also numerous cuts extending irregularly across all the features. The neck was cut through the skin and other tissues right down to the vertebrae, the fifth and sixth being deeply notched. The skin cuts in the front of the neck showed distinct ecchymosis, E-C-C-H-M-Y-O-S-I-S. I have no idea what that is. Hold on a minute while I Google it. And through the magic of editing, also edit out that Googling. 
Oh, okay, so it's a bruise. Well, why didn't they just say a bruise? <laughs> the skin cuts in the front of the neck showed distinct ecchymosis. The air passage was cut at the lower part of the larynx through the cricoid uh, cartilage. Both breasts were more or less removed by circular incisions, the muscle down to the ribs being attached to the breasts. The intercostals between the fourth, fifth, and sixth ribs were cut through and the contents of the thorax visible through the openings. The skin and tissues of the abdomen from the coastal arch to the pubes were removed in three large flaps. The right thigh was denuded in front to the bone. The flap of skin, including the external organs of generation and part of the right buttock. The left thigh was stripped of skin fascia and muscles as far as the knee. The left calf showed a long gash through skin and tissues to the deep muscles and reaching from the knee to five inches above the ankle. Both arms and forearms had extensive jagged wounds. The right thumb showed a small superficial incision about one inch long with extra with extravasation with extravasation of blood in the skin, and there were several abrasions on the back of the hand, moreover showing the same condition. On opening the thorax, it was found that the right lung was minimally adherent by old firm adhesions. The lower part of the lung was broken and torn away. The left lung was intact. It was, it was adherent at the apex and there were a few adhesions over the side. In the substances of the lung, there were several nodules of consolidation. The pericardium was open below and the heart absent. In the abdominal cavity, there was some partly digested food of fish and potatoes, and similar food was found in the remains of the stomach attached to the intestines. So, yeah, this was, there's obviously, it seems like this guy, when, when he murdered his victims, it seems like he, he, was, he wasn't just dissecting them as far as like, you know, the science of it or anything. He seemed like he was angry, like he really had some, I don't know, these are some very vicious wounds, and it's just hard to imagine, you know, it's really just kind of chilling that somebody could do this to another person. And I wonder if this one, the reason why her mutilations are so much more significant than other victims is because if she was, she was indoors and most prostitutes at the time did not have their own room, so they would not have ever had privacy. So he had to do what he did on the street and he had to do it very quickly to avoid getting caught in such a highly densely populated area like London there probably was only a matter of time till somebody came along. And in some of the cases that we've talked about, there seems to be a very, very small window, maybe even like five or 10 minutes where he was able to subdue the woman and kill her and mutilate her. So he didn't have a whole lot of time this time. He had hours and hours, potentially, we don't know for sure the exact timeline, but he might've had two or three hours, at least possibly more to mutilate the victim. And one thing, so he it appears that he took the heart from this victim. I wonder if anybody, oh, I'm sure somebody's thought of it. Like who would have, you would have had to have a way of preserving those, right? So it kind of makes you wonder if there was somebody in the area, maybe working at a university or something like a professor who had the means to, um, to, I guess, preserve these things like in a jar or something and even display them. Cause that's the sort of thing that that they would do, right? If, if, uh, if you're Jack the Ripper, you would take a, a trophy 
and you would want to display it. But if, if you, if you taught like an anatomy class or something like that, you could display it in the open for anybody to look at almost like you're flaunting your crimes, but who knows? I mean, the, the way of collecting that evidence would, there's no way to collect any evidence like that. You can't, you can only just wonder about it. You can't really investigate it. All right. There was one more victim that I'll mention last. I mean, there's a lot of victims that could have possibly been tied to Jack the Ripper. And we don't have time to really go over all of them. This episode's already going a bit longer than I had hoped, but there are quite a lot of victims that could be Jack the Ripper victims And we're not sure whether or not they were, but one of the ones that's generally considered to be the closest match for a Ripper victim, I think I mentioned earlier, was Martha Tabram. And uh, she was killed actually before the canonical five. She was 39 when she was killed and she was 5'3 with dark hair and a dark complexion. And she was also a heavy drinker. So she perfectly matches the profile. Now, she was murdered on August 7th, before the can- any of the canonical five were murdered. And she had been out drinking with men all night, and uh, based on witness testimony, her murder occurred between 2 a.m. and 3.30 a.m. And we know this because where her body was found, somebody was walking by and saw the body there, but it was dark and they thought it was just a homeless person. Um, but John Reeves saw the body at 4.45 in the morning, and noticed a pool of blood, and that's when he knew that uh, there was something foul going on here, and went and called the authorities. She was lying with her back, she, she was lying on her back with her hands at her sides, and her legs were spread open, similar to the other victims. And the time of death was estimated to be 2.30 a.m. She was stabbed a total of 39 times, and the wounds were mostly to the breasts, stomach, and growing areas. The wounds were inflicted by a right-handed person using an ordinary penknife, except for a wound to the sternum, which seemed to be inflicted by a dagger or bayonet. And this, because of this one wound, the police thought maybe it was a sailor that had committed a murder, because the sailor could probably walk around town with, uh, with some kind of dagger or bayonet or something, and nobody would think twice about it. While on the surface it seems similar to the Ripper killings, It lacks other things like the precision mutilations and uh, trophies taken out of the body and things like that. But on the other hand, if this was the first time he murdered somebody, maybe he was just kind of getting warmed up and he murdered her. He just stabbed her a bunch of times. You know, even though it was 39 stabs, he could have done that in less than a minute if he was quick about it. And maybe, you know, he was worried about getting caught. So he just did it real quick and got out of there. And then the next victim, you know, he started to get a little bolder and bolder as it went on until we get to the fifth victim where he had her alone in a room and was able to mutilate her extensively. So that, I mean, so those are pretty much the the five canonical victims plus one. Uh, There are some other victims worth talking about, like let's say the Whitehall mystery where on October 2nd, 1888, the the headless and limbless torso of a woman was found dumped into into a cellar. And then her arms were later found in the river Thames or Thames. And this, I mean, the timeline's right. It's about the same time. And it's, uh, it, you know, it's an unusual murder. It's, it wasn't just a, you know, stabby, stabby, run away. It was a mutilation of some kind. But it doesn't really seem to match the Ripper profile. On the other hand, I mean, it's, it just kind of makes you wonder. But anyways, there's other victims like that that could possibly be a part of the of the Ripper victims. 
And if you want to include a wider range of victims beyond just the canonical five, sometimes it kind of makes me wonder if this wasn't a single assailant or a single murderer, but actually two or more people working together who would sometimes switch up the way they would do things like this, perhaps one person preferred the mutilations and the other person preferred the decapitations. I mean, that's kind of a stretch and it seems like it's incredibly rare for serial killers to work together. There, there have been some cases, but it seems like it's, you know, a very rare thing. On the other hand, on this case, Jack the Ripper is so weird that I wouldn't rule anything out because, you know, we, we just still to this day don't know who did it. So that, that's basically the descriptions of the murders. Now, one interesting fact I mentioned earlier, originally Jack the Ripper was known as what? The Leather, leather Face? No, it was leather a Leather apron. Face. Oh, Leather Apron. That's apron. it. Yeah, the Leather yep. Apron. And the name Jack the Ripper actually comes from one of these letters that's sort of associated with the case. And I'll go ahead and let Agent Ether talk a little bit more about the letters. Sure. During the Autumn of Terror, the police department, specifically the Metropolitan Police, would receive over 700 letters that were sent to them or the local press uh, purporting to be written by the Whitechapel fiend. And a lot of them were, of course, hoaxes, or they think they were written by actual newspaper men to try and generate interest in their papers and in their case, but there are three letters specifically that people feel ripologists might be genuine. So the first we have here was received on September 27th, 1888 at the Central News Agency, and at first they thought it was a hoax and they generally uh, disregarded it. And it's called the Dear Boss Letter, and I want to go ahead and just read the transcription. Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about me being on the right track. That joke about Leather Apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores, and I shan't quit ripping them up till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip off the lady's ear and send the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it, no luck yet. They'll say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. So this is this is interesting because, um, you know, the victim... They, the earlobe you were mentioning had actually fallen off of the victim. And then the next letter, the handwriting's the same, and it's not actually a letter. It's a postcard. It's the Saucy Jack postcard that was received in on October 1st, 88 at the Central News Agency. And this mentions the double event before it was described by the press. 
and it's pretty short. Let's see. I was not codding dear old boss when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jack's work tomorrow. Double event. This time number one squealed a bit. Couldn't finish straight off. Ha! Not the time to get ears for the police. Thanks for keeping the last letter back till I got work again. Jack the Ripper. And this last letter is called From Hell. And October 16th, George Lusk, who is president of the White Chapel Vigilance Committee, they were going around trying to catch Jack the Ripper because they felt like the police weren't doing a good job of it. And he received a three-inch square cardboard box in his mail. And inside was half a human kidney that had been preserved in wine, along with this, uh, this postcard. And it just says, from hell, Mr. Lusk, Sir, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman and preserved it to you. Together, a piece I fried and ate it was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed, Catch Me When You Can, Mr. Lusk. And this was actually really hard to read because the sentences were incomplete and the words were misspelled. And so it's really different from the first two letters, the... Um, Saucy Jack postcard and the Dear Boss letter. And so a lot of people think that it wasn't genuine. Some people argue that it was. And these are really the only evidence we have of evidence linked to Jack the Ripper. We don't really have much else. Agent Anderson did mention a bloody bit of apron. And there also was a bit of scarf that turned up. So I don't know if I believe this. And a lot of people say, let me look at my notes, that this isn't evidence of anything because there's this scarf and it passed through so many hands before it ended up in auction in 2007 where it was bought by an enthusiast. So the USA Today in 2019 announced that Jack the Ripper, the case had been solved and they'd found his identity through forensic analysis and investigation. And there was a prime suspect, one Aaron Kosminski. He was a 23-year-old Polish barber. And along with the fourth victim, Catherine Eddowes, there was some sort of silk shaw, something covered with blood. And what they did was they compared fragments of mitochondrial DNA, which are inherited from the mother, to samples of living relatives of Kosminski, and they found what they called to be a match. And ripologists feel that this is definitely not credible as proof as as the final proof of who the uh, identity of Jack the Ripper was. What do you think, Agent Ether? Do you think it's credible? Ooh, I don't know. It's really hard to say. I, I'd like to believe in science, but at the same time, to say this scarf just passed through so many hands before magically turning up at this auction, and how do you really trace something like that that's 100 years old? Right. I am extremely doubtful. And not to say that this that Kosminski isn't Jack the Ripper, because we don't know, but that forensic analysis has, in fact, proven that he is Jack the Ripper. I, I, don't, I don't buy it. What if the forensic analysis is pretty much all made up, but they somehow got the right guy anyways? That would be <laughs> That would irony. be hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
You've got silver lining, right? You've got to try to find the humor in the situations. <laughs> so what other suspects do we have? Agent ETA, do you have any suspects you want to talk about? Uh, I've, I've already covered pretty much what I wanted to cover, oh, I suppose. Okay. okay. All right. I got more stuff. You want me to tell more stuff? Yeah. Why don't you go through your suspects or stuff or whatever? All right. There's a few official documents that are out there that are related to Jack the Ripper. And the one I want to touch on is the McNaughton memoranda. So this was written in response to an article in The Sun that he found to be sensationalized and generally untrue. So The Sun, this paper claimed that Thomas Cutbush was Jack and that he went around trying to stab women in the back before he was caught. So basically there's this guy and several years after Jack the Ripper's murdering spree ended, he was arrested because he would go around and try and stab women in the back. And the newspaper published the story and said he was definitely Jack the Ripper. So in response, he wrote that there were only the canonical five and there were no more. And he was very adamant. And he created this general profile of Jack. He said it was very improbable that... Uh, Jack stopped in November 88, only to be content to prod girls from behind two years later, and it was more likely that Jack lost his mind after the murders and committed suicide or was institutionalized. And he did point out that over time, the mutilization increased. He said that Jack had an appetite that was sharpened by indulgence, and this was proved by the fact that the last murder took place in a room and lasted over two hours. He gives three suspects that he finds more convincing. The first one was Mr. M.J. Druitt, who is a doctor of good family who disappeared around the last murder and his body was found in the Thames. Then there's Kosminski, who we mentioned. He's a Polish Jew and resident of Whitechapel, who was actually committed in March of 1889, which was around when the murder stopped. And finally, he felt Michael Ostrog, who was a Russian doctor and convict and being held in a lunatic asylum, would also be a better candidate. So what other suspects are there besides these three? Well, we keep mentioning Jack the Ripper, but one idea that was tossed about by Scotland Yard was actually Jill the Ripper, and this was a serious theory. And this is because one of the witnesses, Carolyn Maxwell, would testify to seeing Mary Kelly twice, hours after the doctors determined she died. She said her husband came home from work between 8 and 8.30 when she saw her across the street. An hour later, she saw her again speaking with a man outside a public house and wearing a maroon shawl, which she recognized to be Mary Kelly's. Now, the time of death was between 3.30 and 4 a.m., so how could she possibly have seen Mary Kelly after that? So police theorized that perhaps Jill the Ripper had stolen Mary's clothes. And who was this mysterious Jill? They theorized perhaps she was a midwife. A midwife is like a doctor. She would have the skills to maybe dissect someone to do this type of mutilation. And they called her the mad midwife. Also, a midwife can wander around the streets of London at all hours and covered with blood. No questions asked. Further speculated that she was an abortionist performing abortions for prostitutes 
Uh, one thing that could have been considered evidence for this was that Mary Kelly was actually three months pregnant. However, none of the other victims were pregnant. If they were, I would think this was actually a really good argument. And although it's kind of interesting to speculate, it's really not consistent with the other evidence. Still, could Jack have been Jill? Well, that could explain why they never actually caught him, right? I mean, if it was a her, they're hiding in plain sight. Nobody ever expects a woman to be a serial killer. Even today, I think if there's a serial killer, people immediately jump to the conclusion that it's a man. Which, to be fair, it usually is. <laughs> right, and the strength that you would need, I think, to strangle someone in the way that's described, I, I think it might be difficult for a woman. Maybe, I'm yeah. leaning towards a man there. Well, the last victim had her neck cut, like, all the way to the right, bone. Right, all and, the way to the vertebrae. Yeah. So, I, I don't think it was a woman, but again, it's interesting to speculate. Yeah, it's still an interesting theory, which is really all we have in this. We just have a bunch of interesting theories and not a whole lot more. And I chose when I, there are so many suspects in this case, and some of them are, are the more popular suspects. I chose the ones I found were the most interesting. So another suspect we have is Prince Albert Victor Christian Edward, also known as Eddie to his friends. And the question here is, was he a suspect or was he a victim? He was actually the grandson of Queen Victoria, and he was a minor suspect. Uh, Dr. Thomas Stowell published a piece in The Criminologist entitled A Solution. He postulated that Eddie had contracted syphilis and it had driven him insane and that the royals were aware of this but did nothing until the double event when they had him committed. He would then escape to commit his last murder before dying of the flu. And his profile, they called him Prince Jack. It's in Jack the Ripper. And Stowell. And Stowell claims his theories derived from private papers from Sir William Gull. And conveniently, Gull died several days after the publication, and his family conveniently burned all the papers. There are other equally fantastic theories surrounding Eddie and the royal family, each more improbable than the next. And the BBC actually had a production. And this gets really wild. It's a wild ride <laughs> with Eddie as the victim. And I kind of, there were a lot of notes and I kind of condensed them down to try and get through them. But I mean, you can watch the production if you want. It's kind of like a historical drama where they take, I think, all the facts and kind of mash them together with uh, things that aren't so factual and are sensationalized. So the idea basically is that Prince Eddie had an illegitimate child with Annie Elizabeth Crook, who was a Catholic, which means there was a Catholic heir out there to the throne. And the queen was not happy about this. She felt it was a threat and gave the matter to her prime minister, Lord Salisbury, who ordered a raid on the residence. But the child, Alice Margaret, managed to escape. Eddie had a friend and a confidant, Walter Sickert, who had found a nanny for the child, Mary Kelly. Mm. Mm -hmm. So she would flee to the East End with the child, where to support her, she would become a prostitute. And at some point, either her 
or her friends or a group of people decided it would be a really good idea to blackmail the royal family. And of course, they would respond to this. And there's this whole plot that kind of develops about how they decide to murder her and they go out and they actually murder by accident the wrong woman, Eddowes. And in this confusing and twisting plot, they go on to murder additional women, women, they go on to murder additional women. And eventually what happens to Annie? She's committed and she dies. And then Eddie will later on die from influenza. And the child, unfortunately, will be one of the victims of Jack the Ripper, who is actually just the who are actually a group of people who are under the queen's direction. So (laughs) that is one of the suspects. And then the last suspect that I wanted to touch on was James Kelly. And I wrote here in my notes, he of the penknife. He wrote these series of apologetic letters to his wife, to her family, and He sounds like he's genuinely remorseful, but that doesn't change the fact that in the end, he murdered his wife. So you have this guy, he's the illegitimate child of a 15-year-old. He's raised by his grandmother, and when his mother passes, he inherits a small fortune and decides to become an upholsterer. So he takes lodging with a friend who's also an upholsterer, and they drink and they have paid sex. And while he's waiting to find work, he does odd jobs and he meets his future wife, Sarah Brider. They don't have a lot of money. They end up living with her parents and he actually shares a room with a lodger until they can get their own place using his trust money. But things aren't all roses at home. Uh, According to the parents who were later going to be witnesses to her murder, they had a very poor and dysfunctional sexual relationship and some abuse by an uncle all came out at around the same time. Kelly comes to accuse his wife of being a prostitute who has infected him with VDs and he breaks down her door and plunges a penknife deep into her neck and she dies a few days later. He pleads insanity and is put in an asylum, but he makes a daring escape in January of 88. He stays with family, he's spotted on public transportation, and then he heads to London, to the East End. There's not much information about what happens during that time, but an anonymous note with the initials CET were left at Scotland Yard suggesting that the Metropolitan Police look into Kelly in connection with the Whitechapel murders. And that was November 12th, uh, 19, no, that was November 12th, 1888. And then there's this weird series of events where Kelly travels around trying to give himself up. He goes to America and he turns himself into New Orleans And they ship him back to Liverpool where he's waiting around to get picked up and the authorities just never go down and pick him up. So he goes to Vancouver and no one in London seems interested. So he takes odd jobs and he travels back and forth between Europe and America. And eventually he's just officially discharged on failure of authorities to capture him. 
1929, he returns to London where he dies. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. So, uh, how lazy were they back then? It's like, ah, we couldn't catch. Just let him go. Just let him, he might be Jack the Ripper. Yeah, he's a he's, suspect. but We just can't catch know, the guy. He's, he's just too slippery. It's too just, hard. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're busy, you know. <laughs> I like it. Hey, if only law enforcement was so lackadaisical nowadays, you could rob banks and do all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah, no kidding. Oh, there were so many suspects, so yeah. many witnesses. It was really hard to condense it all down into an hour that's yeah. for well, sure it's, we're definitely over an hour that's for sure <laughs> but well you barely you didn't even talk about some of the more interesting ones like lewis carroll hh H. holmes even vincent van gogh like there's there's a ton of just really strange now most of it's probably or definitely very very flimsy but on the other hand you know sometimes there you can line up the dates kind of match and you know these people were in london at the time and some other stuff. So, but it would, I mean, there, there's a reason there are entire podcasts who do just Jack the Ripper. And the reason is because there really is that much to this case to where you could look in with a very high level of detail to each one of these suspects and, you know, all the, all the victims and all the witnesses and the police reports and on and on and on. It's a fascinating case that maybe we'll never actually get to the bottom of. But on the other hand, I mean, sometimes amateur investigators do amazing work and actually crack cases from time to time. It, it, it does happen, so I wouldn't be surprised if some enthusiasts were able to bring forth some new information or uncover a clue that nobody else had found or thought about considering before, and we might actually come up with an answer at some point. You never know. And when I think about it, my final thoughts about this case specifically are that even if we never catch Jack the Ripper, he's now become part of our culture, especially in the Western world. And there's so much that has been influenced by his story. For example, you know, stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, you see television programs, manga, uh, and it's all connected to, you know, the theories behind Jack the Ripper. There's books that have been written even even today, there's a huge interest in Jack the Ripper. Yeah, it's it's a mystery for the ages, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, any final thoughts, Agent ETA? Well, I mean, I would I would pretty much agree with agree with that. Is that like it's a very interesting case, and there are, I mean, there's a never ending series of theories of of what really happened and who it really could have been, but. I, I don't think we'll ever really know what really happened, really, because the disconnect in time, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, that's a good point. I'm actually surprised at how much we do know after all these years, you know, all these witness statements and we're able to have these timelines and stuff. It's surprising how yeah. much we do have available to us. Yep. Yeah. All right. But, I mean, there, oh, yeah, go ahead. there just isn't quite enough, you know? Yeah. Yeah, not quite. All right. Well, thanks for listening. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. And don't forget to check out our Facebook group and page, AlienConPod. And before we head out, I'd like to just point out a really good resource for everything Ripper related, and that would be Casebook.org. 
I got my information from a few different places on the web, but this one is by far the best place to get any information Jack the Ripper related. It's, it's the single best resource you'll find. It's got a, a basic introduction of the case. It's got lists of victims and suspects and witnesses. It's got the letters. It talks about different police investigation type stuff and documents. It has press reports. It talks about, uh, you know, the London at the day, like what it was like back then. It's got all sorts of different things just related to it. It's got a photo archive. It's got a, um, a forums where people discuss various minutia of the case, which I barely had time to even peruse over. There's just... There's so much data on here, and they also link to a podcast here because there really is that much stuff, you know, that many details to this case. It's people have been combing over this for years now, and there's an entire podcast just about Jack the Ripper. That's right, and it's called Rippercast, the White Chapel Murders Podcast. So check it out. There's a lot of interesting stuff on this website, and if you want to delve a little deeper, this will keep you busy for a really long time.